we can have a part in what she's going to explain in this fundraiser. Terry? Okay, I don't want you to say, oh gosh, not again, because it is something different. It's not the same old thing. First, I want to say Happy Mother's Day. Thank you to Pastor Jim for asking me to come because there is a purpose today. I think it's ironic uh, that we are talking about stories because that's something that I have heard since 2005 when Hope and Friendship was created, is stories. And those stories follow with needs. Uh, we have stories, as you'll see in the pictures, that we've been able to fix. We raised money to get a van, a handicapped van, for a young boy in town with cerebral palsy whose mom was picking him up and putting him in a Suburban because they couldn't afford the lift, uh, a van with a lift. So we rallied and came up with that. Uh, we just, if you're on the Hope and Friendship email list, you saw we were just able to put a lift in a house of a man who has cancer. And his wife had been picking him up and taking him up and down stairs in a tri-level home here in Lamont. Uh, strong Polish woman, but a matter of days, there's only so much you can do to lift somebody up and down stairs to get them from one level to the other. And we were able to rally money to do that. Uh, a gap jacket was given to a young girl that really, really wanted one, but her mom, who's a widow with five kids, said, obviously we can't afford that. Someone donated clothes, and it happened to be in that bag of clothes. Uh, rent was just provided for a family that was about to be evicted. So we needed that, and that money came through in donations. Nine months of dinner was picked up and delivered to a family of a man who lost his wife, and he had five kids. There's a lot of dads here that can cook, and there's a lot of dads that that would just put thrills <laughs> through your body to think that you had to provide dinner for five kids and yourself, let alone grieve the loss of your wife. And for nine months, we had dinners in that house to take care of them. Then there's stories and needs that we haven't been able to meet yet. The ones that I listen to, and as much as we would love to help, but we can't help yet. There's a couple in their 50s that both have been laid off within the last few months. She's waitressed all her life. She waitressed at a family restaurant. The man that owned the restaurant died. The restaurant closes. Where is somebody going to hire a 50-year-old woman that's waitressed? Her husband worked in the trades, and as you know, the trades aren't what they used to be. So they're both now looking to figure out what to do and in their 50s don't want to ask their kids for help and really can't ask their kids for help. How do we help them? There's a, a mom who came to me and she needs shoes for a 16-year-old handicapped son, and she had to take her grandkids in, which is happening a lot right now. There's a lot of families that cannot support their kids, and they're going to their parents and asking their parents to help them, where these parents are already living on a dime themselves. Money is always needed. But sometimes those needs is more than money. And to get that money, we need to do things. Um, today, we talk about mothers. There's a mom in our community that in February lost her three-year-old daughter to an illness. And then uh, three weeks ago, her husband died with cancer. He had been sick for nine years, but the loss of their little one plummeted him, and he didn't recover. And then last Sunday, her father died from a tragic accident. He fell, hit his head, uh, had bleeding in the brain. They couldn't save him. So in three months, she lost her baby, her husband, and her father. We're going to raise, hopefully, funds and some collections for her today over at Cantina. If you come by and want to drop something off, I have candles to be lit for those moms that aren't with us right now. But those are one, that's one of those stories. You can be sailing along and have everything going well, and then all of a sudden it doesn't matter. You could have made every right decision, but it's just going to knock you down. And that's where we need to put hands out. 
not just dollars. It's great. I need your donations. The church needs your donations. You know there's needs everywhere. There's needs in Africa, and Tom and Jenny are flying out and doing that. But there's needs here, too. And sometimes those needs are your hands and feet. Jesus could have taken care of every issue by supplying a material or a physical need. He didn't have to do anything. But sometimes there was those times that he just had to stop and listen and talk. And he had to get messy. He had to listen to the tears. He had to listen to the pain. And it's not easy. It's so much easier when I, the lift that got installed to stand there or to sit with them and listen to the rest of the ailments is hard. It's easier just to give $20. And believe me, that $20 is needed. I'm not saying don't. And Pastor Jim will have me outside if I say don't give your money. Your money is needed, but your time is needed. And the time I know is harder to give. There's only so many hours in the day, and your days are full. But there's things that need to be done. These dinners, the Christmas dinners, the Thanksgiving dinners, the kids' church downstairs, one person can't do one. And I'm telling you that from experience because I'm getting old and I'm getting tired. So next weekend is one opportunity that Hope and Friendship is doing for the first time. We're trying to raise money from begging at the corners, and it's not something I want to do. And I always feel like when you go up to that corner, don't you try to look away or adjust your radio or just like, oh, or put that thing right on your dash. They already gave it the last corner. Well, we're doing it because it's just the simple fact that some of these needs, this couple that couldn't pay their rent, the mom, that there's a widow that they were microwaving their water because she couldn't afford to pay the gas bill. Those needs need to be met, and those needs need to be met with money, and sometimes that money comes from doing the work. Sometimes I need your help with a dinner or to help me with a fundraiser or help me with activity, the unbirthday party, just like here at church. Sometimes those needs can't be met with your dollars, and we need your hands and feet. And I know it's hard, and I know it gets messy, and it takes time, and it might be two hours that you could be doing anything else, something you enjoy or something that you don't want to do, but we need your bodies. And so what I'm asking you today is kind of look back there, see that Calvary is present and has been. For the past few years with Hope and Friendship, you have come forward. You helped make Christmas dinner happen. You helped make the unbirthday party happen. So if you have time next week and you can give a couple hours on Friday or Saturday and help us get raise some money at Tag Days, we have these flyers to hand out. The most important thing I would like to do in this weekend is spread the word because there's needs here in the community. It's not that the needs overseas are any worse than the needs here, because when you have a family that's about to, has been given that eviction note, and they have 30 days to figure out where they're going to go, and the only thing that's going to help them is to be able to help them, one, pay the rent, and two, figure out what else they can do for work, that need here is just as great as any need anywhere. And we can do that. And the only ones that can do it are here in this community because it's right under our noses. It's right within our arm's reach. It's the people that Jesus walked by and didn't keep walking that he helped. That's what we're doing. If we're looking at our neighbor and they're going under and we're just saying, wish I could do something, you can. If you don't have the money, you do have some time. So whether it be here in this church when we're asking to pull things together, whether it be your favorite organization or whether it be also the Hope and Friendship as well, I would love to have you on board. And I appreciate the time, and I thank you for making all of that possible, and I thank you for helping us grow bigger because these ripples are spreading out. I ha- people all around, not just Lamont, are getting assistance because of you guys and because of all the people that have joined on and helped. 
So thank you very much. I ask God to bless you completely and thoroughly because you have completely and thoroughly blessed others. Thanks, Terry. If you can give two hours, it would make a huge difference. So appreciate that. Now, we're going go to continue our journey on the story of God's Word. So check out the screens for a few moments, and Pastor Jim will be coming. Your story. This is my story. But most of all, this is the greatest story ever told. This is God's story. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of their two sons was Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, and one was named Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. When Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. In the lower story, all hope is lost for Naomi. She moved from Bethlehem to Moab with her husband to weather the storm of a famine raging in the land around them at the same time as Gideon's story from the last chapter. Not long after they arrive, her husband dies, but she still has her two sons to care for her. While they are in Moab, they both marry Moabite women, and ten years later, tragically, both of her sons die. In complete emptiness, Naomi decides it's time to go back home to Bethlehem. Her daughter-in-laws uh, decide that they want to go. She begs them not to come, that they will have a better life if they stay in Moab. She finishes her speech with these painful words. No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. In the lower story, we see that she had lost all hope and she felt it was all a result of the Lord's doing in the upper story. 
Naomi was able to convince the one daughter-in-law to stay, but the other, Ruth, insisted that she go. Here's how she put her decision. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. She has certainly chose the road less traveled. Life will be extremely hard for Naomi and Ruth. They will likely live in poverty the rest of their life. And to make matters worse, Ruth is a Moabite. The Moabites had oppressed the Israelites for 18 years before Ehud the judge delivered them. In the lower story, there was little chance that she would be accepted. Yet out of deep love for her mother-in-law and her well-being, this is the path that she chose. When Naomi and Ruth's sandals crossed into Bethlehem's borders, after being gone for over a decade, the women of the town exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Naomi replied, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The word Mara in Hebrew obviously means bitter. She is really convinced that God has orchestrated all of this, and, and he has, but she just doesn't know how the story will end. Now, Naomi owns land that her husband and sons used to farm. However, Naomi can't manage this property by herself, so she'll be forced to sell her land to pay the bills. And once she does, this will basically be committing her life to servitude. But the bigger, bitter pill to swallow is that the identity of a family is tied to land ownership. If her husband's land is lost, it'll be as though he never existed. So how will two poor single ladies make it in Bethlehem? Well, the Old Testament made a provision for the poor called gleaning. Those who owned land would send the harvesters into the field to gather the crop. Whatever little was left, they were to leave for the poor to glean. This is Ruth's primary way to help and to show love to her aging mother-in-law. She will do the gleaning and hopefully bring home enough for both of them to live on. She randomly picks a field to glean, and the owner shows her favor. Ruth is shocked that she is accepted as an outsider and even given protection. Here's what she asked the owner. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? He replies, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth runs home with her arms filled with food and excitement and shares the story with Naomi over a Thanksgiving meal. Naomi inquires about the identity of the owner and Ruth tells her that his name is Boaz. Naomi almost has a heart attack. Why? Because Boaz is a close relative. Why is she so excited about that? You see, there is a concept taught in the law, in Deuteronomy 25 to be exact, that states that if a man dies without an heir, the next of kin has the option to marry his widow, love her, take care of her, pay off the financial debts, and redeem the land. This man is called the kinsman redeemer. When they have a child, he is to deed the land to that heir in the name of the deceased husband, thus allowing his name to live on. 
Essentially, the kinsman redeemer takes on a huge risk and in the end doesn't increase his net worth a single penny. Naomi hasn't been this hopeful in a long time. She takes on the role of a Jewish matchmaker like the one you see in The Fiddler on the Roof. She tells Ruth to take a shower, and splash on some Chanel 5 and put on her Sabbath best. She was then to head over to Boaz's house that night playing the part of Cinderella. She needed to wait until he had finished eating. You never, never approach a man with an empty stomach. After he went to bed, she was to sneak in and uncover his feet and lie down at the foot of his bed. Boaz would understand exactly what Ruth was doing. It was a nonverbal way of requesting marriage. Ruth does everything Naomi asks of her. And Boaz wakes up startled and asks who she is. She replies, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now the word for garment in Hebrew is the same word for wing. When Ruth first met Boaz, he referred to God's wing providing her refuge. Ruth was now asking Boaz to be God's wing to her, and he accepted. He exercised his obligation, and they were married. He not only bought Ruth's widow's land, but all his brother's land and their father's as well. Risking his own estate didn't add to his personal treasury by one light item and redeemed them all. What drives a Boaz to turn his attention from his own selfish needs and wants to reach out to an outsider? Well, as it turns out, Boaz, the now strong, wealthy, respected man in Bethlehem, knew what it was like to be an outsider. We learn in another part of the story of the Bible that Boaz's mother is Rahab, the harlot. Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute that provided coverage for Joshua's spies when they were scoping out the land. She risked her life and as a result was adopted into the family of Israel. Boaz knew what it felt like to be an outsider at one time and, and had it in his heart to reach out to someone else in that same position. As it turns out, that person was Ruth. Ruth and Boaz had a little boy together. That little lad didn't know it yet, but he will inherit the land of his father, Malon, whom he never met. He will carry on that family name because of the kind act of Boaz. The women of the town said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. In the lower story, Naomi thought her life was over, that God had given up on her. Well, she was mistaken. Naomi took her grandson and cuddled him in her, in her lap. The women of the town spread the gossip. Naomi has a son. What happened to the name Mara? Bitter. I guess it didn't stick. She went back to being called Naomi, which in Hebrew means beautiful. And beautiful her life became. She now had a son to work the land, which meant that the name of her husband, Elimelech, would live on. The little heir's name was Obed, which simply means worker. Sounds like a boring name until you understand the whole story. As overwhelming a turnaround as this is, the good news doesn't stop here. There's more going on in the upper story. At the end of the book of Ruth, we are given the genealogy of Boaz's family. It is here that Obed grows up and has a son named Jesse. Jesse then grows up and has a son named David. And 28 generations later, a little baby is born in a manger in the town of Bethlehem. 
named Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer, and he came from the family of an outsider named Ruth. God was not only working above the scene of Ruth's life to provide her earthly needs in the lower story, he was working out his upper story plan with her in mind. He went out of his way to include an outsider, a pagan Moabite in the lineage of Jesus. Now that is extreme acceptance. In the lower story, their life seemed hopeless with no chance of acceptance. In the upper story, God redeems their lives and accepts them as his own. You know, right now, your story might seem a little hopeless and bitter to the taste. But remember, if you love God and align your life to his purposes, as we learn in Romans 8.28, God is working it all out for the good. So wait patiently for God. Wait patiently for God to unfold his good plan for you. That's a oh, man. Whew. I think I just had a heart attack right there. Um, that's a great story. The story of Ruth, just four chapters in the scripture. Uh, and we're going to take a moment just to dig a little bit deeper into this story because there's a great life lesson that we can take away with us this morning. Uh, you can imagine when Naomi and Ruth came back into their hometown, of, into her hometown of Bethlehem. They were both in deep grief, as Randy just explained. Walking back into Bethlehem had to be the hardest day in Naomi's life ever. Uh, that's where she raised her boys. That's where she had lived with her husband all those years. Everywhere she looked when she came back into that town would have reminded her of times with her, with her family. When she walked into that house that she hadn't been in, for 10 years. Can you imagine seeing every room in that house, every nook, every cranny? cranny uh, that's where her boys played. The yard outside, you can just put yourself in her position. And when the people began to greet her and just say, hey, no, Naomi, it's really great to have you back. This was her response. And we saw it, but let me state it again. In chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant beautiful. My life isn't beautiful anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. My life was full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi? Why call me beautiful? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so she just gave a dose of reality to every person. She lashed out at every person that sort of referred to her by her old name, Naomi. And you'll notice in this passage, too, that Naomi referred to God two times as the Almighty. Two times called him the Almighty in her statement of anger and blaming God for all that had happened. Why? Because if God is the Almighty... And if God is good, then why doesn't he prevent evil and diseases and accidents and unfairness? Naomi raised the question that thousands and thousands and thousands of people have raised, and I'll bet that there's a lot of people right here in this room that have raised that same question. 
Now, you know, most public figures, like politicians, for instance, politicians do not like to be grilled with hard questions because it makes them uncomfortable. It makes them, it makes them look bad, maybe. They can't come up with an answer for it. Well, there's no question in the history of the world that makes God look so bad as the question of suffering. In fact, it looks so bad to some people that they don't even think he exists because how could there be a good God who exists, who created a world that ended up looking like this? That's Naomi's question. But the one thing I like about the scripture, God's word, is that God... God doesn't run away from this question. God doesn't try to evade this question like a politician might. God takes this question head on. Every page of this Bible is filled with people, real people, who had real tragedies and real sorrows and real losses in their life. All the way through this book, God is himself raising the question that is the most difficult for God to answer, for us to understand. And yet the word of God is really could be called a treatise in which God addresses the issue of human suffering, in which God gives us answers, something to hold on to, a foundation and a hope and a focus and some reasons behind the pain we go through. And that's what he tried to unfold for Naomi. Now let's get a little bit of perspective on this. We've already learned as we've been going through the story that God tells us in the opening book of the Bible that when our first parents turned away from him and they took things into their own hands and they said to God, we don't need you, God, we can build our own world. When they did that, they allowed the evil one with all of his destructive evil to come into this world and bring his influence, his destruction. Now the question might come, why then didn't God just put an end right there, right then and there, to what he knew was going to become an environment of disease, a history of death and accidents and injustices. Why didn't God scrap the whole thing right there? Well, I think there's one answer for that that God gives us. That would have been allowing evil to triumph over good. That would have been saying that evil is more powerful, more enduring, more dominant than good. And that evil can stop good. Evil can undermine good and put a stop to it. In fact, if God would have scrapped it all right there, evil would have been the cause of you and I and our lives and our futures all being scrapped at the same time and all the good that God has for all humanity. Instead of scrapping it, God put a plan to work in the world that would take the painful and destructive effects of evil and cause even those effects to work together for good to those that put their trust in him in the midst of their pain. Now notice, the scripture doesn't say that God takes evil and turns it into good. God does not turn evil into good because evil can never be good. But God can take the horrible, awful sorrowful effects of evils that strike our lives. God can take all the effects of that, and if we'll bring it to him, God can take that, and he can turn that toward our good. So, God decided, instead of throwing the whole world under the bus of evil, 
instead of throwing all of our lives away and all of our futures and all the good that he had desired for us, God instead desired, decided to enter into the sufferings of this world of ours in order to redeem this world. Now, what does that word redeem mean? It means to buy something in order to salvage it, in order to heal it, in order to fix it and restore it and make it like new. That's the key word in the four, in the four short chapters of the book of Ruth. The word redeem or redemption is used 24 times in just those four chapters. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. Now, you know, Jill and I, we love to go to car shows. Lamont has a car show on Wednesday evening. Downers Grove has a car show on Friday evenings. And you go to those car shows, and what do you see? You see all the streets lined up with these vintage cars, and standing very proudly in front of each of those cars is the owner. We could call that owner the redeemer of that car. Every one of those cars has a redemption story to be told behind it. Some of those cars were discarded in an old barn somewhere. Some of them were out sitting in a junkyard somewhere. Some of them were stuck off in someone's garage, and they hadn't been out of that garage. They hadn't even been turned on in years and years. They were scratched. Some of those cars had never been treated well. Those cars had been abused, some of them. Some of them were just worn out. Some of them were parked because they were in a wreck. They were smashed. But then a vintage car redeemer heard about the car, found the car, and saw beyond the damage, saw beyond all the scratches and all the mess that that car was. And then he pays most likely a steep price to, to buy that car. A lot of people wouldn't consider it worth anything. But man, that, that redeemer... He sees what's in that car and what that car can become, so he's willing to pay any price for it. And then he, he owns it now, and he begins to redeem it. He begins to restore, to turn it back into its original beauty. Well, that's the Almighty. That's what God does. God has a plan for you, just like he did for Naomi and Ruth, that is not undone, and is not defeated even by the tragedies that fall across our path. Now, the very next verse, after Naomi's statement of bitterness and abandonment by God, the very next verse, chapter 1, verse 22, is an, it inserts into the story what seems like a totally irrelevant detail, something that, makes, that doesn't even need to be in the story. It says that after they arrived, in Beth, they arrived in Bethlehem at the time the barley harvest was beginning. What does that have to do with anything? It seems like just a random statement. Well, the fact is, this simple statement reflects one of the greatest truths in the entire Scripture. And the truth is this, that even when we don't know it and we can't see it, and even through the worst possible sorrows and losses, even when we may be so disillusioned and upset with God for what has happened that we, we just want to write God off, if we will trust him, we will find that God is leading the steps of his grieving children. Now, God has a timing. God, things don't happen by accident. Uh, any, any Jason Bourne fans in here this morning? You know who Jason Bourne is? All right, I see some hands there. 
Okay, all right. Jason Bourne, all right. Uh, the trilogy, those three movies, they're about next to The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> they're my favorite, okay? I love those movies. And uh, in the second one, The Bourne Supremacy, you know how Jason's always showing up where people don't expect him to be? And then everyone's shocked. Well, that happens in this movie. He shows up where he's least expected. And then uh, one of the ladies in the movie that works for Treadstone, I'm going to quiz you right here, she says this. Jason Bourne, he doesn't do random. He doesn't just show up by accident anywhere. He always knows what he's doing. He's always got a plan. Anybody know who that was, the lady's name? If you do, you're a real dedicated fan. All right, okay, all right, Pamela Landy. Okay. <laughs> all right, okay, all right. You guys, okay, you guys are really sharp. That's good. Well, the point is, and the point of the book of Ruth is, God doesn't do random either. God never does random. And if you feel like your life is a random accident somewhere, aimless, meaningless, God does not do random for those that put their trust in him. Now, that's what that barley field is all about in the story of Ruth. It was no accident that they arrived at the barley harvest. It was no accident that Ruth, from all the fields she could have went to to glean some grain, she went to the field of Boaz. It was no accident that Boaz rode into the field at that moment and saw her. It was no accident that Boaz was a relative of Naomi with the customary right, as was explained, that if ever the situation should arise that Naomi's husband died, leaving her destitute, that a guy like Boaz, a relative like Boaz, could step in and purchase all of her husband's property, take care of her, and then also the provision made for marrying the widow of any of Naomi's sons that happened to have died. And none of that was, so it was none, none of this was by accident that just, just took place. And as this relationship between Ruth and Boaz began to unfold, Naomi had a breakthrough in her grief and her anger at God. She begins to see God's plan taking place. And in chapter 2, verse number 20, this is what Naomi says to her daughter-in-law. The Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. This man is our close relative, one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, what was she saying? Well, just the way I would paraphrase what she's saying. The Lord has not abandoned Ruth and I. We both outlived our husbands. You know, there's a great sorrow for people that have been married a good long time and they outlived their husbands. Or it's certainly a great sorrow the other way around. They had experienced that sorrow but you know, Naomi's next statement, I think, is probably the greatest sorrow that a human being can know in this world, because she says, I, I know the sorrow, I outlived my two boys, I outlived my sons, and there's something unnatural about that order, isn't there? We don't usually expect that to happen, but it does happen, and it happened to her. But then she says this, but I now know that the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living or to the dead. What does she mean? I think she's finally able to put some things together here and see God's hand. She knows that her, her departed husband and sons, 
They're fine. They're okay. They're with God. They're, they're in God's presence. That's, where, that's the best place anyone could ever be. Though it caused such pain in her for the Lord to take them prematurely to be with her, to be with him. But she's also saying, I know that while they're well and good and cared for and loved in the very direct presence of God, I know that he hasn't abandoned me still in my life here with all the burdens I've got. He hasn't abandoned me. God is present with me too. He's present with Ruth. So I think this is where Naomi begins to take her name back. She begins to get her life back. And that's what God does. So when you're perplexed by life, when you feel meaningless, if you've just gotten the wind knocked out of your sails with an unexpected blow, or if it looks like the wheels of your life have just all come off, (laughs) in the midst of all that, the promise of God, the promise from the book of Ruth is this, that if you will bring those sorrows to the Lord, trust him, then what's happening is you're really coming in, you're coming to your own barley field timing plan of the Lord. God is in that place for you. God is in the place of sorrow. He, the worst day, the worst time in Naomi's life, the worst time in Ruth's life, and yet one day they walk into a bar, she walks into a barley field. God was in that, and God is in the place where you are right now. And he has a plan that can unfold out of that sorrow into something that becomes good and and an enriching part of your life. It gives you your life and your future back if you put your trust in him. He wants to redeem your life. Now, there are two other parts of the story of Ruth and Boaz that may also seem like totally random details, but they're very significant and part of God's big plan. Number one, it took place in a little village called Bethlehem around 1200 B.C. And the second thing is that the book ends in the most unlikely way. It doesn't seem to have any relevance whatsoever. It ends with a genealogy. But again, God isn't random. So what's going on there? Well, Boaz, the kinsman, relative, redeemer of Ruth, they have a son. And God puts this genealogy at the very end of the book, tracing the lineage of that son both backward and forward because he wants us to see the plan that he has stretched out over all the centuries of of this world's history. So looking back 600 years, from 1200 B.C., looking back to 1800 B.C., this genealogy goes back to Genesis chapter 46, 12. And this is what it says. To, to, uh, it, it points out the forefather of Boaz was named Perez. His name is in the, in the text. It should be on the screen. The verses should be on the screen. Uh, <laughs> and then continue on down the screen a little bit. Continue a little more. There you go. Perez, that name, is in the, in the book of Ruth. It says, but, if you, but whose father, Perez's father, if you trace it all the way back, Uh, goes all the way back to Genesis 26. His father was Judah, who was one of the sons of Jacob, whose dad was Isaac, whose dad was Abraham. 
to whom God made that promise in 1800 B.C. that from his family tree would one day come the Savior, Redeemer of the world. Okay, that's looking back. But then looking forward from the time of Ruth and Boaz, if you go forward 200 years to 1000 B.C., the genealogy shows the lineage that goes all the way down to the great King David, through whose family, 10 centuries after that, would be born the greatest of all the kings, the king of Israel, the redeemer of the world. And where was he born? He was born in the city of Bethlehem, in the town of Bethlehem. So the point is clear. God wants us to see that the, re- the redemption story for Ruth and Boaz points to Jesus Christ. And he wants every one of us to know that our redemption story and the whole world's redemption story, it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus became our kinsman redeemer. Jesus became our relative by being born into the human family. And when he was born into the human family, he took on and experienced all the sufferings that everyone in the human family can ever go through. And yet he did that living without any sin. And then he went to the cross, bearing all of our sins, but not only our sins, he bore our sorrows. He took them to the cross too in order to heal our lives from both. The Apostle Peter says it this way, you were not redeemed by silver and gold. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's telling us something really important. I talked a little bit ago about vintage car redeemers that go out and pay a steep price to buy a car that is sitting there scratched up and, and abandoned. They'll go and pay that great price. Well, Jesus dying on the cross, was his blood was the price paid in order to redeem your life from whatever has happened in your life. And I know I'm talking to people here this morning that there could, there could be all kinds of redemption stories told in this building today of things that, tragedies that have occurred in your life, losses that have occurred. Uh, we could listen to each other's stories here for hours and hours. And the pain that you went through, and, and I think probably some people are at that point in the story today in this room that... Uh, Maybe you're, maybe you're where Naomi and Ruth were. Maybe you haven't even come to the point. Maybe you're still in that stage of being angry at God. Maybe you're still in the stage of uh, saying, God, you have abused me. God, you've abandoned me. God, if you were really God, then, then why did you let this happen in my life? But Jesus Christ went to the cross because he has a plan he wants to work out in your life. He paid the price so that if you will come to him, with the sins that separate you from him, and with all those sorrows that have come across your life. He wants to redeem your life. He wants to give you your life back so that all the future, all the good of the future that he, that he has always intended for you, that good can begin to unfold. And so I guess the word, I think for a time, Naomi was allowing her sorrows and her hurts to hold her hostage. She couldn't give them up. She couldn't turn away from those sorrows. In fact, it gave her a very negative theology, a bad view of God. 
But you know, all that changed, and all that can change for anyone that's in this room today that's still holding on to anger and bitterness toward God. So the question this morning is this. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? That's always the first question. That's the most important question. And have you asked him for the forgiveness of your sins? And then the second question that follows that up is, will you bring all of your sorrows to him so he can begin to heal your heart of the wounds and the pain? And maybe you are a follower of Jesus today, or maybe you're someone who at one time followed Jesus closely, but you've become disillusioned by disappointment or by grief. The question for you this morning is, will you come back to him with your sorrows, and will you trust that he can take them and work through them for your good and the good of others? You know, Naomi was a mother who loved like only mothers can love. There's a deep, something deep about maternal love that I don't think probably can be matched anywhere else in this world. She grieved like only a mom can grieve at the loss of her husband, And the loss of her boys, two of the deepest sorrows that this world can know. But she also found this, that the Lord did not stop showing his kindness to her. And that's the discovery. That's the key. And I think there's many a person in this world whose life has been uh, waylaid and put on hold because they, they, they have not brought their sorrows, their pain, their their needs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, everything, the whole story as we go through this, it all comes back to Christ and whether or not we bring our lives to Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now. And I want to pray a prayer this morning. Uh, I want to pray the prayer this way. I want to pray for moms that are here. You know, moms, they are the people that experience both the joys and the sorrows of their families. They take both of those. They have the, the, the joys of all the great things going on at home. But whenever there's those sorrows, moms, moms are right there to live through the sorrows of their kids as well. So we want to pray for moms this morning. That's a, it's an important task. It's a tough task. And since we're talking about suffering, and we all do suffer here and there, I want to, I'm going to pray for us all this morning in this closing prayer as well, that whatever we're dealing with in our lives right now, we, we are trusting him, that he is our redeemer. Now, Mother's Day is a day to celebrate moms. There are some of you here this morning that uh, lost your mom, some very recently. I lost my mom this past August. I know there's several others this past year alone have lost parents, their mother, other loved ones. I'm sure there may be some in this room who don't even know who their mom is. Maybe that's sort of part of the backstory of your life. You never had that joy that, to get to know your mom. There may be some in here this morning whose relationship with their mom uh, is not a good one and has been just a, a source of pain and sorrow in life. Well, we can bring whatever those are. We can bring it all to the Lord and trust him to intervene in our lives. So I'm going to invite us to pray right now. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning that you give us this great message, a very simple message, not simple to take hold of, not simple to live, 
But Lord, it's a clear truth that you have made the investment in this world. You didn't scrap it. You didn't throw it over, set it off into the junkyard and forget about it. Lord Jesus, you instead invested yourself into this world. You came into this world and took on our sufferings and took them to the cross so that we can be healed. And I pray, Lord, this morning for every person in this room who is alienated from you because of, because of anger over something that has happened in their life that wasn't fair, a loss, something that just tore their life apart. Lord, you know the pain, and you don't minimize the pain and the sorrow that we go through. In fact, you enter into it, Lord. You understand it. But Lord, you don't want to leave us in that pain because it only breeds, breeds bitterness. You want to bring us out of that and back into the joy, back into the purpose, back into the meaning that you have for our lives. I pray, Lord, this morning for every mom that is in this room. I thank you for them. Lord, I pray that you will bless them. Lord, I pray that you will help them with the, the task and responsibility that they fulfill in the home. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for every person in this room that perhaps did not have the blessing of knowing their mom or maybe has not had the blessing of, of a good relationship with their mom. Heavenly Father, we just commit all these things to you because we know that you are a God whose heart and mind are big enough to understand, intervene, and work out a mighty plan. Lord Jesus, hear our hearts today and receive our hearts. And if there's a person here who is asking you into their life for the first time ever, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will reveal yourself to them in a very powerful way. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 God bless you. You can be seated. We're going to take a moment uh, to worship the Lord in the giving of our tithes and our offerings. I want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving. And uh, God bless you. Use these moments just to reflect upon the Lord. And then we'll come back and we'll share a couple more things before we are dismissed today.